Morning. Welcome once again to By Grace. We are thrilled that you're here to worship with us, whether you're joining us in person or online. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to begin our journey through chapter 13, looking at verses 1 through 22. I do want to preface what follows is gruesome. We just need to acknowledge that up front. The Bible's not G-rated. You heard uh, Mark say that earlier this morning. And I just want to reiterate that the themes for today touch the very center of human experience, existence, and the outcome that we desire is to gaze into evil that we might know all the more what is in us, what is around us, and what Christ has come to abolish from all creation. We won't see every category of sin, but we will see these deeply, up close, and personal. Be warned. We also remember that this is the word of God, and that he has given it to us without apology, that we might know him and his glory all the more. So, 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down, pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I might eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, 
he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that, he hate, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he wouldn't listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Ammon, Amnon because he had violated his sister. Let's pray. Oh God, in heaven above, come and meet with your people. Come and speak to us today about the evil of our rebellion against you. Father, forgive us, even at the outset, for the ways that we have plotted to do evil in your sight, to each other, to ourselves. Father, we ask this morning that in your mercy, you would give us clear sight into this evil. And even more than that, God, we pray that you would overcome this evil in our eyes, that we might see beyond this, not ignoring it, not pushing it aside, but trusting you all the more. Come and speak to your people. Come and stir faith in us. Come and help us to see these moments and these evils as you do. And then let us trust you until we see you face to face. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agree. The Bible is filled with human stories. Truly human stories. And often, those human stories, they are not holy stories. They're stories of desperation, of evil, 
Stories that bring sorrow to the heart of anyone with compassion. Today is one of those days. This is one of the chief stories among them. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, in response to David's evil against Bathsheba, God pronounced a judgment on David and his house. And remember, let us remember that God promised a dynasty to David to have a throne that David's heir would sit on forever. And that promise is true, it's trustworthy, and it's underway. But also, God issued a judgment against David and his house. In verse 11, we see, Behold, God says, I will raise up trouble against you out of your own house. What we will see in this chapter and the chapters that follow is the unfolding of that trouble. The unfolding of the consequence and and reality of David's sin being echoed and expanded in his own family line. David has many wives, and from them, many children. And some of them are going to bring public shame on David's house. They're going to bring public shame, evil, and trouble from within the palace, within the dynasty of David, we will see. Gross, grotesque sin. But we will also see the hand of the Lord bringing this trouble about that we might see our desperate need for deliverance. That we might see the true content of the human heart. But if you at the very outset of today want to hear Yahweh's voice in a chapter Without his spoken name, listen to the pleas of Tamar. Listen to the pleas that come in verses 12 and 13 and again in 16. Listen to the viewpoint of Yahweh through the tears and cries of Tamar. For she will be trapped, she will be ignored, she will be raped, she will be despised, and she will be banished. Do not come to this text as a spectator looking to watch unfolding evil. Come with ears that hear God's Cry for justice in the midst of gross evil and injustice. This chapter is filled with lust and rape, hate and murder. And if we trust Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount, 
we will begin to see that all of these things are in us. Maybe not expressed in these ways, but we battle lust, do we not? We battle urges to take what does not belong to us, to covet what others have and desire it for ourselves. We have the capacity to hate And out of our hatred, the desire even to shed blood and murder. Listen to the cries of Tamar. Listen to her pleas that these evils are not to be done in Israel. This is not proper for the people of God. But inwardly, We battle to keep these things there, inward, until the day comes when all of it, not part of it, but all of it, will be banished from our thirsts forever and ever and ever. You ready to wade in? Let's go. Absalom is David's son, and he has a beautiful sister. Her name, Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son from a different mother, loved her. This is one of the ways you'll see the language develop in this chapter. Everybody's going to be identified based on their relationship to David as head, as king, as father but also through the lens of immediate brother and sister relationships versus sort of a cousinly brother and sister relationship. So here we have introduced David's son, Absalom, Absalom's sister, Tamar, and their half-brother, Amnon, David's son. And we're told in verse 1 that he loved her which should be a great thing, yes? It is fitting for the people of God to love our siblings. But this isn't that kind of love. This isn't the kind of love that parents desire for their kids. It's a perverted love. And we will see that as it unfolds. In verse two, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to him to do anything to her. A couple of strenuous notes here. A couple of places of emphasis. The first is that real love does not lead to torment. That's our clue at the very beginning of this. That his love is broken. It's wrong. Because it leads not to her good, but to his torment, which will not lead to her good. We're also told that she's of marrying age. But it seemed impossible to him because of their relationship for him to act on this perverted love. Amnon had a friend 
crafty friend at that, whose name was Jonadab. He's the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. So we have cousins involved now. This is a family plot that's unfolding. Again, this trouble was going to come from within David's own house. And boy, does it come. In verse 4, John has an idea. And he says, oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon says to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab says to him, well, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. It's amazing how quickly this serpent-minded cousin already hatches a plan. And it's a good plan because it will accomplish the evil it's desired to. This is a warning to us because Jonadab is sharp. He's skillful at, I'm going to use big old air quotes right here, wisdom. This is not biblical wisdom. The fear of the Lord leads to biblical wisdom. That's not what this is. This is him knowing how to work the angles, how to move the pieces on a chessboard to accomplish his purposes. In other words, this is wisdom without ethics. So he's the most dangerous one in the chapter. I want you to hear me very clearly. He's the most dangerous character in this story because he has no conscience and he's eager to help his cousin violate, wait for it, his cousin. Taste the evil and danger of wisdom without ethics. Because at this point, it's just bare lust. It's perverted lust, but it's impeded perverted lust. Well, Jonadab removes all the impediments with this great plan he has. All right, all you gotta do is pretend to catch the flu. And then, in your weakened state, just tell King David, Father David, to exercise his authority to move the pieces around that you would like a particular family member to resolve this particular issue. You guys have favorite people when you're sick, yes? Who do you like to nurse you back to health? You should be looking at spouses or perhaps parents, loved ones who care for you in your times of need. So the plan is both vile and commendable. Nothing out of the ordinary seems to be going on. Just lay down, pretend to be sick, get your father the king, to send her over to you. And that's when you can get her alone. But go back to verse 2 and catch the end of the verse. 
Amnon has no desire to be with her. This is what healthy adult sexual expression is designed to look like. Two married people being with each other. No one taking something from the other that isn't freely and joyfully given. That's not what this type of perverted love wants. This is theft through adultery, incest through rape. He doesn't want to be with her. He wants to do something to her. Hey, men, how much of your thought life is about what you can convince your wife to do for you rather than to be with her? Who is your sexual expression about? Because Amnon's is about himself. But if you're anything like all the other guys in this room, there are seasons of your life where sexual expression has very little to do with giving, very little to do with pleasing, and everything to do with getting. Am I clear? Don't take from your wife. Give and be with her. And if you're not sure that you're ready for marriage, then you are not ready to give to her being with her as a gift. Clear? Good. So Amnon gets the plan. It's crafty. It's sharp. It works all the angles. So it happens. It unfolds exactly as Jonadab plans. Here's Tamar, verse 8 going to her brother's house where he's laying down, but it's fraudulent. He's laying down that he might lay with her, not that he might get better. <laughs> Though, he does need to get better, both outwardly and inwardly. He is sick. So she takes the dough, she kneads it, she makes the cakes in his sight, she bakes these cakes, she takes the pan, she empties it out on a plate before him, but he refused to eat. Why? Because there are spectators, and evil is most often done in private, without witnesses, without witnesses. So he commands from his bed everyone to leave. So they do. Then he says to Tamar, hey, bring that food into my inner chamber that I might eat it from your hand. Is this not a male fantasy? Naked women with tree branches fanning you. 
goddess-like women plucking grapes and tossing them onto your tongue. Yes? Do you not want to be worshipped? Isn't that the desire in its perverted forms, at least in part? Come place it on my tongue. I'm so sick and weary. Can't even hold the food. So here's this beautiful outwardly and beautifully inwardly woman obeying her father, going and doing the work that was asked, bringing it to the place, needing it, caring for it, cooking it, presenting it. So she comes and brings it to him in his chamber, her brother's bedroom. Verse 11, but when she brought them near to him to eat, he grabbed her wrist. He grabbed her wrist and he commands her while holding her wrist. Come lie with me, my sister. Does that creep you out yet? He's fully acknowledging two things. One, they're blood related. Too close for marriage. She is his sister. But also, he communicates his vile intent. His virginity is what he's, her virginity is what he is after. So while the stronger man holds her wrist, she responds to his demand. And she says, no, my brother, do not, and if you have any suspicion that I'm misinterpreting this moment, see the word violate. Do not violate me. If you ever study the dynamics of power, you will understand that powerful people never plea. They don't have to. When you see someone begging, pleading, understand that they don't have power and that they're asking the one with power to do what they are unable to do themselves. It's the easiest way to read moments like this. Power doesn't plead. Outside this context, it helps us understand the very nature of prayer. That we who are powerless are asking the one with all power to bring about just purposes, to bring about mercy on us or a loved one, to bring about salvation itself. 
to grant repentance, to give faith. These are things we pray for because we ourselves do not have the power to bring them about. So we plead for them. She sees the very clear command that he gives her. Lie with me. Wasn't a question. She pleads back, no, emphasis on my brother, do not violate me. Do not commit this horrific personal violence upon me. And then she adds, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Well, apparently it is done in Israel. What's she saying? She's pleading Torah. She's saying it's the pagan countries. It's the pagan worshipers. It's the pagan people that surround us on the outside who commit not just rape, but incestuous rape. There's three different places and more in the law of God where this is clearly, explicitly banned Let me give you these three. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 9, and then again 11. God says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, for your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. How specifically does that relate to today's story? Verse 11, in the same context. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is what? Your sister. No ambiguity here. Leviticus 20, 17, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, they don't even have to have intercourse. Catch that. If he's just gazing on her nakedness and he sees his nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. It is a disgrace. We don't want to disgrace, right? We want to welcome grace. We want to live in the power of grace. It's a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. For he has uncovered his sister's nakedness. And he shall bear on his body his iniquity. Deuteronomy 27, 22. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Oh, come on, guys, I need you this morning. And all the people say what? Amen. Amen. We agree. We agree with the word of God. We agree with the law of God. We agree that God's plan for us and human flourishing is better than our miscontrived options, our perverted desires. His plan is better. His ways are better. Israel doesn't commit incest. 
willing, or especially otherwise. Because we have God as king. And he has made his ways known to us. This is what she's pleading to him. This evil, this outrageous thing, she says in verse 12. That's not done in Israel. Her plea continues. As for me, she's even trying to draw his eyes outside of the moment. Remember, during this, quote, conversation, he's already latched on to her. He has all the power to make what he wants come to pass. And there's no one in the room or outside the room who will challenge him in his desires. Even his cousin is complicit in this plan. She has no helper. And here's this daughter of the king of glory. This daughter to the king of Israel, who should be more safe in Israel than David's daughters? They get pretty dresses to wear, we're told. Really nice ones with long sleeves, many colors. They're favored in public. She's trying to take him outside the moment, outside the lust, indulged, overwhelmed moment. Trying to help him think about the consequences if this were to happen, because it has not happened yet. She's begging him not to do this thing. Verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, You'd be one of those outrageous fools. You'd be a pagan in Israel. You're a son of the king. What are you doing? She's calling him a wicked pervert. That outrageous fool is very sanitized here. She's calling him a wicked pervert. Maybe better said, a godless wretch. She sees the moment. She knows what's about to happen. And her only hope is to throw the law of God at the supposed son of the kingdom. Do not do this. You will be not just inwardly in your heart, but outwardly. You will be an outrageous fool, a wicked pervert, a godless wrench. Think about the consequences of what happens next. This is her plea. Not just we don't do this, but you shouldn't do this. Think of the aftermath. Think about what follows. But one of the realities of lust, if we can be honest about it, has nothing to do with consequences and everything to do with getting the nut the squirrel wants. Nothing will deter us when we give ourselves to lust. We will find a way to have our way. Where do I take my shame? She asks. 
what shame should she have? She had no sin, no shame in this moment, but she knows, she knows us. She might be innocent, but it, it won't matter. It'll be about the dress she wore. It'll be about the alcohol she drank. It'll be about the party she went to. It won't be about what he did. It won't be about his power or her helplessness. All she did was need some bread and bake some cakes for a family member whom she loves, who pervertedly loved her back. Don't do this now. Think about what follows and then listen to the last one. Okay, here's her plea. Speak to the king. He might let you marry me. She would, be, she would rather be married to this pervert for the rest of her life than to be violated against her will you don't think five years from now she's going to be violated against her will? Or 10? Or 30? Please don't take what she's crying out here too seriously. She will say anything to get his hand removed from her wrist. She just wants out. If she can get a tiny bit of space, she can never come near this danger again. Wouldn't you say anything to prevent this? Verse 14. Oh, God help us. He wouldn't listen to her. Being stronger than her, he violated her. Lay with her. That with doesn't belong there. I'm just telling you the facts. In Hebrew, he laid her. That's what it says. He laid her. She was an object, not a participant. He didn't just lay with her. He laid her. He violently acts upon her. He gives her nothing but shame, fear, a burden too great to bear, and no place to take it. This is, after all, the king's house. This is, after all, the king's palace. This is, after all, the highest place in God's kingdom, God's kingdom, Yahweh's kingdom. Yahweh's kingdom works like this, thinks like this, acts like this. May God help us. He does. He does. There is a place to take this shame. There is a place to take this anger and fury. It is the cross of Christ. This is, make no mistake, forcible rape, violent, personal rape. And it lies at the very center of this story. In literary analysis, 
Verse 14 is the center of the first half of this story. It is the most important because it is the most vile. The whole story has been leading to the execution of this evil. And it will withdraw itself from this evil altered forever. Amnon gets what he wants. Yay. Now he's satiated. He's satisfied. He scratched that itch. It's all over. Indulged lust. Hear me. Indulged lust will always lead to hatred. Hatred of yourself hatred of the object of your lust, you will never be satisfied in indulged lust. And every, everyone who engages in pornography and masturbation knows that's true. Yes? That we move from lust to loathing is absolutely critical for understanding how unloving this is. Lovers, after the act of love, rest in their connection, in the intimacy rekindled, established, reconnected, expressed. Biblical marriage, real love between husband and wife produces satisfying togetherness. Indulged lust does not have that as a first fruit. It doesn't even have it as a later fruit. His immediate response to his violent rape of her is two words. We don't do it this way in English, but it's two words. Get up and go. Get up and get out. He was done with her. Tosses her out like trash. And then bars the door. As if whatever her reaction would be, might harm him, you think? He's done with her. Get her out. Bolt the door. He says, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Y'all, immediately after he manhandles her, he invites his servant to manhandle her all over again. You see the evil? You see the abuse of power? You see the absence of any kind of compassion or connection? His lust immediately turns to loathing. The object of his desire that he was tormented by for so long, he must cast away from his presence because he despises her. Amnon treated her worse than a prostitute. Because prostitutes get paid. (sighs) 
verse 18, she's wearing the robe of the king's daughters. It's beautiful, many colors, long sleeves. This is how virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out, bolted the door. Amnon gets obeyed. She doesn't. Let's take a breath. How do you respond to the misery of others? This is a real question for us. This story begs this question. How do we respond to the misery of others? Her response was to put on ashes, tear the beautiful robe, lay her hands on her head, and run away crying as loud as she could. What more is there on earth to cry about? That which is supposed to be the height of intimacy became the height of cruelty. Where does she take her shame? She takes it to her brother. Verse 20, her brother Absalom says to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Wait, you knew about this? No, no, this is just the conversation. He's finding it out. What's the advice? What's the advice a great loving brother gives when you've been raped, cruelly tortured, grotesquely, violently assaulted. Does he throw his arms around her? Does he sit quietly below her, asking her to say whatever she wants, provide any comfort that's really needed? If he provides comfort, it's an ice-cold one. What's his reaction to her misery? Hold your peace. Oh, well, thanks. Hold your peace. Uh, peace? Not really something I'm holding right now. Yes? Rage? Yeah, I got, I got handfuls of rage. Sorrow? Yeah. Grief? Yeah. Fear? Yeah. Peace? <laughs> no. Ice cold. Hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take it to heart. Men have been saying stupid things like that for millennia. Oh, well, just don't think that when I say that. When I say this thing that offends you, I don't mean to offend you. Just think something different. I'm going to keep saying the words I want. You just receive them differently. Don't take it to heart. He's not saying it's no big deal. We find out the rest of the story next week. He's not going to say it's no big deal. He's basically going to say just bottle it up all inside, trap it in there, hang on to it, and present a countenance of peace. Don't let him get you down. Don't show anybody it bothers you. Not, hey, I have these great, Christian counseling resources for you, and by the way, I do. 
I do. I'm going to take the pastoral privilege of saying to you, there's a ministry we support in our church called Harvest USA. And they are the top dog in understanding how sexual expression and sexual brokenness affect gender thinking, sexual activity, personal identity, shame, guilt, all of it, all of it, all of it. Pornography addiction, masturbation, sexual addiction, all these things that all of us are battling. Not just the guys, all of us. They have resources and experts in every nook and cranny of this area. I wish I had millions of dollars to give them. But I am grateful that we give 500 bucks a year on the day of giving so they can get matched to this glorious ministry. Please come to me. Please come to your elders. We have a professional counselor in our midst. At least start there. Go to Brent. Whisper these things. Write an email to your elders that we might know what's really going on, whether you're a victim or a per per perpetrator or anything in between. If you are dealing with sexual anything, come to us and come to Harvest USA. That's my pastoral commercial. We're told in verse 20 that Tamar lives as a desolate woman. This moment, this hideous evil, it laid her to waste. How does David respond? King David, oh David, save us, David. David, we're going to find, is filled with anger. He's filled with fury, but that fury will accomplish nothing. Anger without justice is whining. Anger without justice has no mercy. It has no compassion. David, who's father of this household, who's king of this whole nation, finds out, verse 21, King David heard all of these things, and he's very angry, and he does exactly nothing. Why? Why? David, why? Why, David? Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. Says David was irate. He was furious. He could scarcely contain his rage. But unfortunately, he did. Scarcely contain his rage. But unfortunately, he did. Why does David do nothing? Why does David do nothing? Is it because it hits too close to home? Does Amnon's rape of Tamar correspond to his own sexual exploitation of Bathsheba? Does David hate the sin that he has and excuse it in his son? Is his fatherly love and loyalty greater than his kingly responsibility? Unfortunately, yes. Carl Gutbrod says this. Since David in this moment became a second Eli. You remember Eli? I know this was like more than a year ago. 
1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29, Yahweh is speaking and he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Here's the key. And honor your sons above me. That's what David is doing. No justice for his daughter. He's going to honor his son. David would later write Psalm 9. Hear this. Psalm 9, verses 7 through 9. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for what? And he judges the world. How? He judges the peoples with what? The Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold for when? David fails. It is not the first time. And it will not be the last. What's the theological witness of this? How do we respond to this? What are we to take from this? God is allowing the unfolding judgment. He promised in the previous chapter, behold, I will raise up evil or trouble against you out of your own house. What do we do? How do we think? How do we respond to this? I have two for you. Yahweh wants two primary responses from us in this story. The first, to rouse our sympathies for Tamar. To see her when other people aren't seeing her. To hear her when everyone else in this moment allows her pleas and cries to fall on deaf ears. Even in the evil and chaos of this world, God wants us to abhor perversion in all its forms. To abhor it, to hate it, to scorn it instead of him, to scorn it instead of his commandments. He wants us to trust him no matter the circumstance. Understanding that God is there with us, he's bringing about his purposes. But that also, we have broken the cosmos. God didn't do that, we did. Adam did that. Sometimes that's all we have to hold on to. I'm gonna trust God in this moment. I'm gonna trust God with the fallout. I'm gonna take my shame and my fear and my anger and everything else, I'm gonna lay it at the foot of the cross, trusting that one day Tamar will be avenged. It should have been left up to Yahweh to avenge, but we'll take a look at that next week. But make no mistake, anger leads to murder. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount explicitly that that's true, though it's always been true. If you want to be filled with fury, and I hope you are, I hope you are filled with gut-wrenching anger and that it leads you not to hate the son of David, but to hate the sin that glories in the resurrection of the true son of David. Understand that the blood of Christ is a more powerful cleaning agent than your sin could ever scourge. Understand that the shed blood of Jesus Christ 
washes away all sin, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And until that day, injustice will be present, but we should rightly hate it as he does, because it leads him to obey his father and go to the cross. Amen? Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we hear Tamar. We hear her pleas for mercy. We understand her compelling request that such a thing is not done in Israel. But we also confess that these things and others are done in our hearts. God, forgive us and clean us, enable us and strengthen us, that we would do no outrageous thing, that we would never be godless wretches, that we would understand the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts is greater than the sin that we hold so dear, than the lust we thirst to act upon. Father, forgive us for our lusts. Forgive us for our greeds. Forgive us from all the times we desire to take and not give because you've told us that it is better to give than to receive. May our expose in this personal evil help us to glory all the more in the advent of our Savior. We ask that you would do this and more. In the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agree.